0: Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a 3-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter consumervc for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. My guest today is Lucy DeLand, partner at Inspired Capital, who back early-stage founders with transformative ideas, brilliant teams, and relentless determination. Some of her investments include Geneva, Habby, and Dandy. Lucy also co-founded Paperless Posts and previously served as their COO. Without further ado, here's Lucy. Lucy, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: Great. How are you? Thank you for having
0: me. Oh, it's it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me. So, you know, I was looking over your career and I know you went from kind of investor to founder to investor. So I think that weren't make maybe make where it makes the most sense to start is what was your attraction to a career in technology and innovation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my actual first job was at the Boston Red Sox, uh, the baseball team. And it was my an internship, it was focused on the transformation of the ballpark of Fenway Park of this old historical institution. And that was the beginning of realizing that I liked to even in the oldest, you know, 100 year old institutions be part of the new and uncharted territory of building and making and transforming, which was really not part of that culture. And that was sort of a, a thread that I started to pull on throughout college. And so as I was graduating, I realized that the only place I wanted to be was somewhere that was really focused on what comes next and on growth. Growth, meaning how do you, you want to start a company that is focused on sort of what the next evolution of a product should look like. And then within that journey, be really focused on how do we bring this to as many people as fast as possible. And those were two things that really excited me.
0: Got it. Got it. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So talk to me a little bit about like the founding of paperless posts and how that all came together.
1: So I had the great fortune to join forces with two friends who were actually siblings, my friends, James and Alexa Hirschfeld. Uh, James had come up with the idea for paperless while he was a junior at Harvard. So when we started the company, he was actually still in college. And he had this moment where planning his first party sort of as a pseudo adult at 21 years old, there was no way for him to invite all the friends in the way that he felt was really lived up to the event that he was having that expressed him and himself really well. And he sort of said, if I'm lacking this, I know there are a lot of people who throw much more important events. And I think that this sort of formal communication that celebrates our life milestones really deserves a place on the internet. And that design and self-expression is something that's going to, that's been around for the entirety of human history. And it's going to find its way into the internet. And it's important to remember that this is 2007, 2008, when we were sort of throwing the idea around. The first things we heard in investment meetings were that design does not matter on the internet, that no one would pay for anything on the internet, and that nothing can ever be fancy on the web. And we just fundamentally believed that that wasn't true, that the internet was probably going to follow a lot of the trends uh, that humans had had uh, since the beginning of time, not buck them, even though it wasn't where it started. And that efficiency, actually, both in sort of the delivery method and the price point, were going to be really compelling along with design.
0: No, that's that's amazing. And it's crazy how much has changed just as you're saying that and being kind of the forefront of design and as it relates to the internet and, you know, now design, it's table stakes, having a great design for anything.
1: I mean, you, I know you have, and I know we'll touch on this later, but you've even had enterprise products that put a big focus on their UI, uh, UX, and believe that design is a part of their experience.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'd love to also just kind of hear about, you know, those, so like the early days of Paperless Post and obviously the insight that you had that you just shared, but how you thought about growth in the early days in terms of like the scrappiness and getting the business off the ground?
1: So we were, scrappy was definitely a word that I would use to describe us throughout the first couple of years and, and probably part of the DNA actually for the duration of till today. When we were launching, one of the questions we had was our stationary and and imitation enthusiasts gonna love us or hate us to begin with. And we found that they were absolutely obsessed. And that became a cornerstone of our adoption was that there was this Etsy crew, this maker crew that really did have a very personal relationship with being able to express themselves and particularly in moments when they were hosting friends and family, but that was a really different early adopter set than what you normally saw in uh, early stage tech companies. So we had we had an interesting challenge, which was getting our users not only up to speed on our product, but on utilizing the internet for things outside of just very rudimentary use of email and sort of like what would have been a day-to-day use in your work environment um, back in 2008. But that also came with what is you know, the blessing of obsessive early adopters. They battled through things and they told us what they wanted and they were incredibly vocal. And that allowed us to grow really deeply into their lives. And that's what started the flywheel. And so for us, when you first received a paperless post, what you said was, wow, my friend did something cool. I've never seen that before. And the second time you received a paperless post, you said, oh, we do this now. And when your party would come up, you would go to do it. And so we, we realized that our conversion rate on the receiving of a second invitation was so drastically higher, 10x, that there was a social moment that made you realize that this is something I also can do. And then third, fourth, fifth, actually kept going up because it, was, it went from, oh, I can do this too. We do this. This is the way we do it now. And then we would sort of permeate an entire sort of community and we would become the way that they invited one another.
0: Yeah, I mean that's amazing how much the conversion rate skyrocketed from the first to the second. That's incredibly um, just like an interesting metric. Oh I, was
1: gonna, yeah, I think it's about how how much consumers watch each other
0: too. Totally, totally. And I think that you know addressing it like that, as you say, it was okay. Like this person's doing it, and then and then it's wait wait. Wait, we're actually doing an event. Okay, we now need to do this and that kind of mentality um, in terms of adoption. That's that's really really cool. I mean, especially in terms of like organic growth, right? I mean, that's what I think is also kind of fascinating. For
1: us, it was, we didn't hire um, anyone with the title, objective, or you know, descriptor of marketing until our fiftieth employee.
0: Wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. So it was quite the kind of organic growth chain that you're just doing, just from that kind of cycle from that you're describing.
1: Exactly. Um, And that really came from listening to our users, what would they use us for more? And then making sure that we were onboarding those who were finding out about it and seeing it and that they had paths to do what it was that their objective, uh, that was going to meet their objective.
0: Amazing. Amazing. And so obviously you're you're an investor now, wanted to know what led you, because I know you, you, you were an investor before you founded Paperless. What led you to going back to your roots per se and become an investor again?
1: Well, it's a cliche, but most of the good ones are for the right reasons, which is that I found the right partners to build Inspired with. And I had the great fortune that they were on this path putting together a venture firm from the ground up that was very operator and investor focused, which obviously fits with my background. But I got to start Inspired with a great Friend and what I sort of call almost like an external colleague, Alexa Von Tobel, who started Learn Best contemporaneously to Paperless Post in New York City back in 2008. And what that meant was that we got to go on the founder journey side by side and together. We were one another's sort of most intimate confidant outside of our organizations about the challenges we face, about the exciting things happening, about the hard things happening. Usually, our conversations fell into the latter camp. And that kind of gave us insight into two things, which was what it would be like to work together, which was sort of a running joke, maybe halfway through that journey that you know we would start our next thing together, that we had really complimentary points of view that we very rarely agreed, but we could really hash through problems together. And then it gave us an insight into what it would be like for a founder to work with one of us and whether or not that would be a valuable experience for that founder. So we went into Inspired really having dog what it would mean to work with Inspired. And Mark, our third partner, worked with, he and Alexa worked side by side at LearnVest for 10 years. They sold the company together. They'd been through the trenches. So she had that insight on him. And then our fourth partner, Penny Pritzker, was someone who put Alexa into the White House while she was Secretary of Commerce to Obama. And she really had the vantage point of, what it means to have Penny Pritzker on your side. So I think it was a confluence of events that allowed me to say, I get to build something again, which is what I love. And I get to work with founders across a number of different companies, which is what I would do all day long, even if I didn't get paid to do it. And to do it with folks who I trust, who I believe in and who I think are here to build something really big and meaningful. So, you know, at the end of the day, it was a really easy, hard decision.
0: (laughs) That's terrific. That's really cool. In terms of just the formation of Inspired and what led you to coming back. What were some of the lessons learned? We probably talked about one of them in terms of maybe the marketing side, but what were some of the lessons from your experience as a founder of Paperless Post and as CEO that, that you think makes you a better investor?
1: So one of the lessons we learned early on, adjectives that we loved at Paperless was, everything you thought was going to be easy is hard. And everything you thought was going to be hard is also hard. in building an early stage company. And so I have a high degree of caution when someone tells me the parts that are going to be easy or the things that are no brainers in terms of what they're building and kind of says, oh, but this is going to be the hard thing. And so able to, to work with them to realize that Doing something really well, most things uh, are challenging. And then I think the greatest lesson of 10 years of going from everyone thinking we were insane to jump ship from sort of our safe jobs and safe environments to go start a company in New York City in the tech space, which was sort of not mainstream back then to, you know, being able to tell people my, I'm working at Paperless Post, everyone like giving you a blank stare to fast forward 10 years where you get to sit on a plane and someone asks what you do and they're like, oh my God, I just used Paperless Post for my wedding, save the date. And being on that journey of sort of obscurity to incredibly well-known and used by you know, a fourth of Americans was actually in how do you motivate people in the team in the day-to-day. And that that didn't become more or less challenging over the course uh, of the company. It just changed in terms of you know the beginning days, you have really scrappy young employees who are just there to show up and make a difference, who don't have experience, um, but they've got a lot of energy and they've got a lot of willingness to work hard, but a lot of blind spots up through your final days where you're or like, like you know, your more mature days where you are hiring extremely seasoned executives, you have to focus most on what is going to motivate those people to show up every day in a good mood with a lot of energy to do their best work. And I think that constantly thinking about that as your job as a leader and a founder is there's no better sort of place. You can't learn that without being on the job. I think.
0: Totally. I think that there's a number of good takeaways and insights there. I'd imagine on the first one, you know, being wary, I guess, when someone says, "Oh, yeah, this is going to be simple. This is going to be easy." Maybe that also maybe lends into thinking, "All right," and maybe when you're maybe evaluating founders, the actual focus level in order to be able to do maybe one thing extremely well, rather than trying to do multiple things uh, reasonably well. If that's if that's uh, fair to say. Yeah, I
1: think it's also in you know the word "just" coming into a sentence is always really important. We we just need to hire five people. And you're like, okay, let's back up one second. And we need to hire five people. You can do it. And I think shifting a founder's focus from into the mode of, like you said, how do I focus on how to do each each of these things well and then how do I focus on what I'm not going to do today instead of thinking I'll, I'll do the easy stuff and the hard stuff
0: that's a really good point that's a really good point and that's also just a really good point about time management just in general focus on all right what am I actually not doing today I know I'm not doing it today as opposed to doing today that's very very cool
1: the icebox in JIRA is a place that we should all have in our lives in our work environment it's an important list of things that will be done someday
0: Right. Totally. Totally. So I know that you're a generalist, but you're thesis-driven. How do you approach which categories you want to focus on and just how you evaluate opportunities?
1: So... For me, I'm really, I, I don't know what the right word is. A trier, an experimenter. I have 500 apps downloaded on my iPhone. I subscribe to every email list that I come in contact with. Which in my inbox is heinous and scares people to look at my unread numbers. But I think that also translates into how I go deep on a thesis. And that's really, I, you know, I've done a lot of work looking at the mental health space, which has been obviously like gotten a lot of attention and fervor. And my bias is always towards talking to people the same way you would approach it as a founder and a, or a product manager, talking to people in the industry on the on the ground, not biasing towards experts or sort of industry leaders exclusively. But I would say my bias is more towards those who are therapists working directly in different cities, trying to compare what a suburban versus an urban consumer is facing, and finding that to be where you get to discover patterns that are more organic and less formulated. And so I would say, probably from a thesis-driven perspective, I'm, I'm more of a bottoms-up researcher and developer than a top-down.
0: No, that's, that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to kind of dive in more on that because I think that, you know, as you said, talking to people on the ground and how they're maybe approaching innovation, you know, I think there's been also a lot of like material on if you're so ingrained and maybe you become an expert on an industry, which I know those are the kind of people that avoid might be the wrong term, but those aren't the people that maybe you, you actively seek out.
1: And i not to say that I don't listen to their opinions. I guess it's just not to the exclusion of those who might. And I guess it's also closer to the problem. I think is uh, the set of problems in an industry might be where my bias lies. Yeah.
0: No, totally. Cause I think that when you are maybe a quote unquote expert, or you've had a ton of experience that you may not even be able to think that innovation could happen or, or what that innovation could look like. So I think, I think this actually makes a lot of sense in terms of your approach. And I know we spoke about, you know, in a prior conversation, we talked about some of the differences when your customer is a consumer versus, you know, an SMB, an enterprise. And, you know, when it comes to technology and feature set, what are your kind of must-haves for selling to maybe a consumer versus, you know, SMB?
1: So one of the things I'd like to see... In recent trends is kind of how technology aimed at SMBs or prosumers are starting to steal, lift, borrow, whatever the right word is, the UIs of more familiar consumer apps that everyone might be on. So we looked at a or talked to the company um, called TradeHounds, which has a very Instagram-like interface, and it is a labor marketplace in the construction space where you can swipe through to look at the ultimate work done by those in the trade and you know these pictures are probably and and photographs are very meaningful to those who are in the industry and the ui is incredibly familiar to everyone who has held a smartphone for the last 10 years and both from the perspective of how do i create this content but also how do i consume this content and so i think on the smb side and on the prosumer and professional side there is a, a large move towards how do i take a complex problem and really swallow that complexity in order to deliver an incredibly lightweight easy to use intuitive focus end user experience and i think like we were saying earlier in the conversation i think enterprise a lot of enterprise software has also built in a lot of focus on design and ux i think that where that deviates is that there's still a huge hurdle in terms of table stakes to enter a space when you are serving an enterprise customer and so That side of it has not changed, whereas I think the the more focused and niche applications serving SMBs have been able to achieve a lot of elegance in their end user experience. And while they might be robust in terms of solving one focused problem, they aren't trying to have everything in the kitchen sink in their applications. And I think that the form is informing how they deliver that end user experience pretty dramatically.
0: Yeah, I know. First of all, yeah, I completely agree with me. I think that almost design has become table stakes, I guess. I, I think I might have said that previously, but it's really interesting how design, even on the enterprise side, is extremely important and you know, ease of use as well.
1: And where might have seen SMBs have sort of a reduced set of feature sets from an enterprise, maybe 10 years ago, it's like, oh, this is a simpler version of something We will get in SAP. Now I think you see sort of like consumer paradigms being transformed to meet professional need states.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I'd love to also discuss, you know, a little bit about your due diligence process and if that due diligence process as well has been disrupted by COVID.
1: Our due diligence process looks a lot sort of, or and particularly my name uh, personally, it looks a lot like I was saying above where we want to connect with end users, be it consumers, those in an industry, those on the ground who will be using the application in addition to those industry experts who can kind of give us the zoomed out 30,000 foot view so we can both check ourselves on our thesis and our understanding on the industry as well as get as close as possible to the customer, the solution and the need state. I would say that covid Rather than disrupt our process, it has accelerated it. In 2019, we were already seeing the speed of rounds move quickly, more quickly, more quickly. The speed of rounds accelerate. The shift to Zoom and video only, I believe has just expedited that. A team no longer needs to coordinate how to be on both coasts, to meet in person with a variety of firms. A number of meetings, even in the same city that could have taken a few days, up to a week, can now be collapsed into a day or two. And that means that all the work that I described above needs to happen in a shorter amount of time. And fortunately, we also have video and calls on our side to make that happen. But I think COVID has had really interesting, accelerating effects on the community. And I think where where the process suffers the most in this environment is just in the relationship that's being built between the investors and the founders. And so I think it's it's highly beneficial in this environment when you can work with someone who you've met in the past and forged a relationship with either in person over or over a number of years. But I think that's probably the hardest part today of the COVID diligence is is really establishing the connection between the founder and that specific investor and the firm as a whole.
0: Yeah, that's something that I've heard from other investors as well in terms of if you already know the investor or maybe have a great warm introduction, then COVID hasn't had as much, maybe as much an effect on you. But if you don't know the investor, you know, don't have maybe a pre-existing relationship prior to COVID, then it's a lot harder. For an investor, even if they take the call or a couple calls, it's really hard to establish conviction in your company. I mean, I've also heard investors that we always invest remote. We've had a few, so so COVID's not really disrupted anything on our end too.
1: What's interesting is also just thinking back to March, and I would love to hear, you know, or March and April, the answers to questions like this at the beginning of the pandemic, because just as a student of psychology, and which I think is kind of what consumer is, is a study of like the current state of human psychology, I'm always I think that there's this amazing dichotomy in humans, which is we are incredibly averse to change and then we are incredibly adaptable. And so I think that there was about a two-week period where everyone was like, how are we ever gonna do deals on video? How are we ever gonna invest in someone we haven't met in person? Fast forward nine months and we're doing deals at a rate that we wouldn't have conceived of 18 months ago.
0: Totally, totally. I completely agree. And it's also interesting too, just from some folks saying that now they're so much more efficient because they don't have to Travel and travel so that there has been maybe some benefits there. I mean, this is a tough time for everyone, but I think
1: we've learned a lot about what is necessary and what is not. And that we are all in a privileged position that we could transition every part of our work into a virtual environment and still stay really productive and learn versus just just result in sort of like hard times in terms of what this environment is doing, which is not something that any of us want to persist, even though it hasn't been detrimental to as much to our industry.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I know you invest in both the seed and series A. I'd love to know about what are some of the different milestones for a company maybe have to achieve in order to raise a seed round in today's landscape versus a series A and some of the differences.
1: So in the companies that I work with and sort of like companies I'm talking to, I, I always am a little bit cautious against wide sweeping industry-wide metrics for different rounds. What I tend to focus on within a specific company is momentum. What is what is causing momentum? What is building momentum? And that generally tends to be something you've learned, something you've accomplished that's unlocked traction or growth or another key metric. And that, that means it's time to raise another round and invest in that learning. And it usually trans. I mean, if it- Sometimes that learning simply means that you know that something's going to work. I think that that is what it can be at the seed round. We have had an alpha, we got this set of feedback, we know that we have a customer base that is primed and ready to adopt this. And then at the series A, I think that the ante gets upped and it's we launched this, we have clear and present traction happening. And we know that with greater investment, we are going to be able to repeat this new process that we've learned in order to scale revenue. Sometimes that looks like getting to a million dollars in revenue for a Series A. Sometimes you are halfway there or you're double it. Um, And the reason I caution against it is because, you know, I think that sometimes there's this wide sweeping adage of like sort of a million dollars gets you the right to earn it, to raise a Series A. But if you've had to fight tooth and nail to generate every dollar of that 1 million and you haven't sort of had that unlock that helps you gain that momentum and that you have some waves working and sort of like the wind at your back, then I'm not sure that it is the right time for you to raise a series A. And conversely, if you go from zero to 500 run rate in a course of three months, it might be a great time for for you to raise a series a and so those are sort of the the reasons that i'm a, a little bit hesitant to to nail down specific particularly revenue milestones
0: no i i really appreciate that it seems like just thinking about what you're saying it seems like if you've able to achieve and able to almost prove that you've achieved a scalable levers in order to achieve like efficient growth if that's fair to say
1: and if you have you know you want to go in you want to start a company that has sort of tailwinds in the industry if you start to feel those inside of the company things pulling you along customers demanding a lot of you wanting to pay you more Uh, a lot of these things where you know as a founder you will know when things are starting to click and when things that you know like we're talking about the easy things that actually turned out to be hard when they get a little bit easier when the hard things get a little bit easier and the sales cycles start to move faster or the adoption starts to, to move a little more quickly. Some of them will be highly quantitative. A lot of them will be qualitative. But I would look for those signals that your customers are throwing to you and the market is throwing to you more than what the investors are throwing to you. <laughs>
0: No, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. So what are some current trends that you're currently focused on? I know you mentioned mental health. I'm happy to dive in more on terms of what different parts of mental health that you might be focusing on or uh, companies that are focused on in that space because it is quite a broad space in, so to speak, but other trends as well. Happy to hear that too. So
1: I think we can sort of do some hopscotch around. Um, in mental health space, I think that there's an exciting emerging trend around, you know, there's a holistic trend around how do we democratize the access to therapy? And now sort of on the heels of that, we see a trend of how do we actually scale the idea of what it means to deliver therapy, which is to say that how do you create group therapy as a more available option. It is cheaper for the end user. It is more lucrative for the therapist who only has so many minutes and hours in their day, which puts confines on the number of people that they can treat in a given week, month, year. And the concept of group also has been shown to help other people articulate some of the things they're feeling that maybe they wouldn't be able to articulate to a therapist. It's almost like there's a a learning to be in therapy that happens as part of these things. And then there's the, the sense of community. And I think that that layer of community as a feature within consumer, and actually I think this is going to be true across SMBs and in in other areas as well but community as a feature that is omnipresent in product experiences is going to be on the rise and I think it's going to you know We've seen this from the beginning of the internet. Every Reddit subthread is an example of this, of how people want to find, find, quote unquote, their people around different topics. And I think you can find your people as it relates to who you want to be at work. I think you can find your people as it relates to how you want to show up in your hobbies, as you want to show up as a parent. To me, that's a theme that I think we're going to see sort of explode over the next decade.
0: I, first of all, really appreciate how you um, explained that, uh, especially the part that I find really interesting is this sense of community and how you say omnipresent. So it's not just, you know, or it might be that the initial contact point is meeting somebody online, but it also could be that you have in-person communities as well when things get back down to normal. But I love that.
1: Yes, exactly. When we're allowed to be in person again, yeah.
0: Exactly, exactly. But like, that's, that's really interesting to me. And I feel like that's almost like the next step, because now we're a lot more comfortable, you know, meeting people online, interacting people with online. And so having those connections, maybe become deeper connections where you actually start meeting in person. Yeah, uh, that's beyond, you know, dating, it's actually finding communities and friends.
1: And I think it moves in both directions. I think those people who you meet in real life or communities that form in, in real life, want to have a really robust online extension to that community. And that if it only exists over here and that there isn't a set of tools that help them get back together, that help them communicate asynchronously when they can't be together, then those communities don't develop as richly in a 2020 world.
0: Totally, totally. I completely agree. Thanks for bringing that up. That's really interesting. So what is one thing that you would change when it comes to venture capital?
1: I mean, I think that there are so many cliches about how, you know, this is a marriage and you want the right partners in the boat. And I'm not sure that the, and I think all of those things are true, but I don't think necessarily the system that we have today is set up to work as hard as it should for founders to be able to evaluate investors, not to say that to weed out investors that are bad or something like that. I I think hopefully we can continue to, to hold everyone to a high standard and that you can always have quote unquote good investors, but to find those good fits because what you want around the table is founders who are able to trust their investors in the darkest moments and investors who also feel that way about their founders when there's a really big, hard challenge coming up for a company that they feel comfortable and confident going to that founder and expressing their concerns and being able to let, you know, put a lot of that quote unquote hard stuff on the table. And I think an environment where rounds are moving really quickly and just in what is set up as sort of an adversarial relationship to begin with, it's hard to necessarily form those relationships and you hope they'll end up being there at the end of the day, but I'm not sure that the system is set up today to, to necessarily be a big part of helping that happen. And instead, I think it happens because the individuals are are really committed to making it happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you. I think that it's maybe one of the cliches in venture in that, you know, more than a check where this is a long term partnership between, you know, for like seven to 10 years. But at the same time, when it comes to making decisions on the founder end and on the investor end, these decisions happen extremely quickly. So it's just a bit of a cliche there because, you know, how do you you truly know if that partner is a good partner? Yes, you can cross-reference and cross-check and and do and it, which
1: you do all your homework in that way. But I think that it's hard to replace spending time together, talking through things, and getting to know each other with background info.
0: Totally, totally. I completely agree. So, what is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: So, I think the book that has inspired me most over the course of my life is a book called Amazing Grace by Jonathan Kozal and the book that I I would say I'm less inspired by professional books. Um, But the book that kind of provoked me to think more about my day-to-day and how I'm quote-unquote running my life recently was Why We Sleep and just getting back down to brass tacks and like my relationship with this incredibly important thing that we do day in and day out that sometimes is looked at as something that is a nuisance, or in the way, or something that you just need to get done. And instead, considering it a time that is really important for my brain, myself, how I'm showing up in the world. And so that's one that's inspired me to sort of change my habits or or my focus recently.
0: I love that. No, I've, I really appreciate you sharing. We've I've, I've had a number of folks that also cited Why We Sleep. I think you're the first though that pointed to Amazing Grace. So I'll certainly have to check that out since that shaped your life or had a profound impact on it. So I'll certainly have to check that out.
1: I mean, it's a sociology book, so it may have a smaller audience than many others get, that get mentioned. There. But I think more than anything else, it's on the human condition. And I think it, it was one of those really eye-opening, a mix of science and empathy that had a profound effect on how I, how I think about and approach the world.
0: So what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received?
1: Piece of advice, and this wasn't really a piece of advice, but it was sort of a reaction, which I think shaped my approach to work. So it was one of the first jobs I ever had, and I was working a million hours. This was actually at the Red Sox that I mentioned earlier. I was really young. I think I was 18 or 19. And I was very proud of myself for working a million hours a week. And so I was sort of um, brag complaining to my father about that. And he just very flat out turned to me and was like, if you're ever working a nine to five, it will mean that you're really bored. And I think that was his way of imparting that if I'm not lost in my work and if I'm not working because I want to, which was what I was kind of explaining at that time, but but with this um, metric that I was using, which was hours, because I was so into it, that if I were ever able to tell someone sort of like what my what my work output, when I came and when I left, which I can physically tell you when I show up to the office, I can physically tell you when I leave, but I can't tell you when I'm off and when I'm on because it is a 24-hour prospect. And, and that's sort of the same approach that I take to parenting and to, to life, which is that I'm a parent 24 hours a day too, And so I think as I've watched other people in like sort of our whole world talk a lot about balance and how do you carve out time, um, I think my approach has always been how do I only spend my time or give myself the luxury to spend time and work really hard on things that I really care about and on things that are gonna pull me in and are things that are gonna keep me engaged and challenge me. And that's been helpful in, in not feeling an absence of balance, but, but feeling a lot of fulfillment.
0: No, that's great. That's really great. Yeah, there's a number of great takeaways there. I think also just being comfortable, I mean, working for 24 seven, or, you know, obviously being parent for 24 seven, but just being comfortable knowing that, you know, not that you always have to be on per se, but just knowing that the work doesn't stop at, you know, 5pm every day. And just I don't know, it's just, it's cool.
1: And I think, for me, it's if you if you just because you leave at six doesn't mean either that that doesn't beget balance. Because if you don't, feel good from nine to six, that's way worse than working 24 hours a day. And if you're working 24 hours a day on the wrong thing, that's also, that's brutal. So I think, you know, feeling engaged and and knowing that once you start counting the hours, that's probably the bad sign versus the number of hours that you're counting.
0: Totally. Totally. That's a great, that's actually a great way to phrase it. My last question is, I would say, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders?
1: Focus. Like we said at the beginning, what's on your I'm not doing it list? I'm not hiring these 10 roles. I'm not uh, building out these features that I know are crucial. Focus delivers results at a much higher velocity. And that means that you learn if you're right or wrong faster. That means you make your customers happier, faster. And I think at the end of the day, it means counterintuitively that you can do more. Um, And I think the allure of many goals and achieving them all at the same time can be very hard to resist. And so I think if I could give a gift to any of my companies, it would be the gift of focus.
0: I think that's an excellent piece of advice. I think it goes back to your first point when you were as a founder. So that's terrific.
1: a hard one lesson. (laughs) That is one of those that like, do as I say, not as I have done myself many times.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lucy, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun to hang out, Mike. Thank you.
0: And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Lucy. Lucy, thanks again for taking the time. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks.